Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and of course, everything in between. We're going to take a trip back to the ocean today because I just love it so much. No, I hate water. I don't know if I've ever said that before. I'm pretty sure I have, but I desperately despise being in large bodies of water. I think I said last week, I even hyperventilate in the shower sometimes. So why I do this to myself, I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to do it anyway. Uh, Today we're going to talk about something called the Bluebell. And it's a mystery surrounded in an enigma, wrapped inside an envelope, wrapped inside stuff. I ran out of things. Beside the point here. This is a ship just oozing with mystery. There's suicides, there's lost at sea, there's insurance fraud, there's a whole lot to go over, so let's just jump right into it. This is the story of the Bluebell. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Now, if you were alive in the 60s, 70s, 80s, somewhere in there, you probably would have heard about something similar to this. Or the name, maybe Sea Orphan, rings a bell. Well, that's where this ship comes into play. But let's just look into the background of what the Bluebell was and what's going on in this particular story. Now, the Bluebell was a 60-foot, twin-masted sailing catch based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The ship was scuttled following an act of mass murder by the ship's captain, Julian Harvey, on November 12th, 1961. Now, what happened to Harvey? Well, we'll get into that in just a little bit. What happened to some of the other people on the ship? Well, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Let's just go into a little bit more background about this ship, shall we? The final complement of the Bluebell consisted of a 40-year-old Arthur Duperot and his wife Jean, and their three children Brian, Terry Joe, and Renee. Duperot was a successful contact lens optometrist. He and his family resided in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he had a long dream of taking his wife and children on a week-long family cruise from the Florida Keys to the Bahamas which he had sailed during his World War II days, as opposed to the family facing another cold Wisconsin winter. For several years, the Duperos had saved money for this opulent experience. By the summer of 1961, the Duperot family had saved enough money to finance this cruise. The family had planned to spend about a week living at sea aboard a chartered yacht in a warm climate, docking at several chosen locations, and possibly even extending the sympathetical if they all enjoyed themselves. Which, why wouldn't they? They're sailing from Florida to the Bahamas in the 1960s. What's not to like about that? Now, the family finally arrived in Fort Lauderdale in early November, where they chartered the 60-foot, 18-meter catch known as the Bluebell. It was stationed at the Bahia Mar Marina, and it cost them 515 bucks. Dupro hired a well-known local yachtsman, a 44-year-old named Julian Harvey, with whom he was fairly acquainted, to skipper the vessel for a hundred bucks a day. Harvey's sixth wife, yes, sixth wife, so he's a keeper, 34-year-old former stewardess and aspiring writer, Mary Dean Harvey, was also appointed to serve as cook on the catch. Now the Duperot family boarded the Bluebell at around midday on Wednesday, November 8th, 1961, 
and the vessel was last seen leaving port early that afternoon. Over the following four days, the family traveled to locations such as Bimini and Sandy Port, where the Duperos purchased souvenirs and engaged in activities such as snorkeling. On November 12th, at their final port of call, prior to returning to Florida, the Duperos and Captain Harvey visited the office of British District Commissioner Roderick Pinder, to whom Duperot stated, quote, this has been a once-in-a-lifetime vacation, adding, we'll be back before Christmas. That evening, all aboard, the Bluebell ate a meal of chicken and salad. Shortly thereafter, 11-year-old Terry Jo walked below the deck to her sleeping cabin as her family and the Harveys remained above deck. Now, approximately... 12.35 p.m. on Monday, November 13th, a crew member aboard the oil tanker Gulf Lion observed a man waving frantically from a dinghy, drifting in their direction and shouting, Help! I have a dead body on board. Pulling the man aboard, crew members observed the deceased body of a red-haired, prepubescent girl wearing a life jacket inside the dinghy. The man identified himself as Julian Harvey, skipper of the Ketch Bluebell. Harvey explained that approximately 8.30 the previous evening, his small vessel was hit by a sudden, strong squall that caused the Bluebell to rapidly keel over and the mainmast to snap at a location between the Abaco Islands and the Great Stirrup Cay, slightly injuring his wife and Duperot in piercing the ship's hull. According to Harvey, he was completely separated from all others on board the catch by this falling mast and the resultant loose rigging which pulled down the mizzen. These are all things I have no idea what they mean. They're parts of a boat, I guess. I don't really understand boats. I try to avoid them. I may have mentioned it, but I don't like water. So I have never learned how to do anything boat related, because fuck that. Apparently he claimed to have attempted to retrieve a wire cutter from the cabin to clear the deck space, but suddenly a fire broke out, because of course it did. And he was not able to rescue his wife or any of the passengers. Hmm. How convenient. He claims he was forced to abandon the catch alone on a dinghy with the body of a seven-year-old Rene Duperot had soon floated by, and he had retrieved her body and attempted to revive the child, according to him. He was unsuccessful in his medical efforts, and he had kept her body alongside him in the raft out of respect. An autopsy later revealed the child had died of drowning. Naturally, this is all weird, so Harvey was taken to Nassau. He was questioned by authorities in that port city, although his calm demeanor and the fact that his dinghy had been filled with various survival supplies caused some initially to express serious doubts about his claims. Harvey's story could not be disproven, and he was allowed to return to Miami on November 15th to face further questioning by the U.S. Coast Guard. Three days later, on November 16th, a child was rescued in the Northwest Providence Channel by the Greek freighter Captain Theo, second officer Nicholas Spachidakis, observed her floating aboard a 2x5-foot cork float apparently one mile from the freighter. Spachidakis immediately summoned Captain Stylianos Koutsoudantis to the bridge. These are Greek names I don't know how to say, so I apologize if I'm butchering them as I always do with foreign things. Hey, hey. Anyway, the two gradually realized that Spachidakis's sighting was not a fishing vessel, but a small oblong white raft carrying a young blonde-haired child dressed in a white cotton blouse and pink corduroy slacks, leaning backwards and waving feebly. 
the captain ordered the freighter's engines to stop and the life raft was lowered. It's also worth noting here that sharks were apparently circling very close to the cork raft and crew members shouted at the child not to jump into the water while one of the crew members, Evangelos Cancelias, lifted the child aboard the raft. She was then hoisted aboard the Captain Theo and placed in the spare cabin. Aboard the freighter, the crew rapidly discovered that the child was incoherent and barely able to speak. She was given water and orange juice as salt was sponged from her body with wet towels and Vaseline applied to her lips. She hoarsely identified herself as 11-year-old Terry Jo Duperot, informing the crew that she had been floating aboard the cork float for several days after the sinking of her vessel. Her ability to speak rapidly waned and the child soon responded to questions by weakly gesticulating before lapsing into a semi-comatose state. The crew of the Captain Theo did not retrieve the cork float upon which Terry Joe had drifted for almost four days. However, a member of the Coast Guard did locate and retrieve the raft from the ocean several days later. The raft had almost fallen apart and almost immediately began to disintegrate in the hands of this individual. The captain of the Captain Theo immediately informed the United States Coast Guard of their discovery and the child's medical predicament and a rescue helicopter was soon summoned. Terry Joe, suffering from several severe sunburns, dehydration, and exposure, was airlifted to a hospital in critical condition. Three hours later, having been airlifted to a Miami hospital, Terry Joe began to slowly recuperate. Although for over two days, she was unable to divulge to the police or the Coast Guard the circumstances surrounding her rescue and the truth of what had happened aboard the Bluebell. However, by November 20th, Terry Joe had regained sufficient strength to reveal to investigators the truth about the loss of the Bluebell and its passengers. Late on November 12th, the Bluebell began its return journey to Fort Lauderdale. At around 9pm, Terry Joe had entered the lower cabin to sleep, leaving her parents, sibling Harvey and his wife on deck. Later that evening, she was awakened by the sounds of her brother screaming and calling for his father and heavy footfalls, which she decided to investigate. Above the deck, she observed the bodies of her brother, her mother, in the main cabin, not too far from the galley. Walking a little bit further onto the deck, Terry Joe then observed Harvey carrying a bucket, and with this bucket, he simply struck her, and then shoved her below deck, shouting, Get back down there! Naturally, the terrified child returned to her cabin, only to observe oil and water beginning to gush onto the floor of her cabin approximately 15 minutes later. Harvey then entered her cabin with what appeared to be a rifle in his right hand. The two made eye contact, but Harvey did not shoot her. He simply returned above deck. Terry Joe then heard hammering sounds. Shortly thereafter, Terry Joe returned to the deck only to observe Harvey standing on the deck and the vessel's dinghy floating on the port side. He then asked the child, Is the dinghy loose? To which she replied she did not know. Harvey then ordered her to hold a rope attached to the dinghy while he retrieved something. By the time Harvey returned to the child, the rope had slipped through her fingers, and in response, Harvey dove overboard and swam towards the dinghy, abandoning Terry Joe on the sinking vessel. It was at this point she remembered the small oblong cork float lashed to the deck. Terry Joe untied the float as the boat deck began to sink beneath the ocean. She then threw the float over the side before swimming towards the life raft, pushing the float further into the open water before climbing onto the float. She then drifted upon the sea for almost three and a half days without food, water, or shelter. Her life raft had been so small, Terry Joe had to sit upright for the entire ordeal. 
during which she reportedly prayed for rescue. Terry Joe was adamant that the mast of the Bluebell was intact and that there had been no fire aboard the vessel and that the sea was calm throughout the entirety of the events prior to the sinking. Shortly thereafter, she was informed that Harvey had been picked up alive three days prior to herself in a life raft alongside her sister's dead body and that the bodies of her parents, her brother, and Harvey's wife had all been lost at sea. So all of this is a little fishy. So naturally, there was an inquiry, and that happened on November 16th. Harvey reiterated his story to the U.S. Coast Guard investigators that a sudden squall had brought down the Bluebell's masts, hoiling the ship's hull, rupturing the auxiliary gas tanks, and starting a fire, the circumstances of which made it impossible for him to rescue his wife or any members of the Dupero family. Harvey also claimed that he had found Renee's body floating in the water and that he had tried unsuccessfully to revive the poor girl. Now here's where things take a very weird turn, if they haven't already. It was on November 17th, midway through Harvey's scheduled interrogation, he was informed that Terry Jo had been rescued the previous day and that her condition was improving. His response was to exclaim, oh my god, before quickly adding, isn't that wonderful? Isn't it? It's great. She's alive. Lieutenant Ernest Murdoch then informed Harvey that an official investigation into the loss of the Bluebell and her passengers was to be launched that day. Not long after that, Harvey asked to be excused from the interrogation, claiming he was tired and that he wished to speak with his wife's family. His request was granted, and that was a mistake. Harvey then drove a short distance towards Biscayan Boulevard, where he checked into Sandman Motel under the assumed name of John Monroe, paying cash for a room. He then penned a two-page suicide note before committing suicide by slashing his thigh, ankles, and jugular vein with a razor blade inside the motel bathroom. Wow, he hit all three. I don't know why ankle, though. There's not much, not much down there, other than the tendons, so I guess you could run out. I don't know, that's a weird one. The thigh would go up pretty quickly. Same with the jugular, but I don't know why he did the ankles. I don't know. If you know why, if you're a doctor and you have any reason why somebody would slash their ankles to kill themselves, let me know. That's a weird one. His body was eventually found by a maid approximately two hours later. The suicide note addressed to a close friend from his days of military service was found on a dresser within the room adjacent to his body. The note left no explanation or apologies for his actions, but simply ended with the words, I got too tired and nervous. I couldn't stand it any longer. The note also requested the recipient take care of his 14-year-old son, Lance, and that he be buried at sea. Given such clear evidence of foul play from the sole survivor of the Bluebell and Harvey's subsequent suicide, an investigation was launched into Harvey's recent history. The inquiry revealed Harvey was a decorated World War II veteran and Korean War pilot, but he had difficulty holding a job for any length of time. He had serious financial issues as well and recently had arranged a double indemnity insurance policy for the life of his wife just two months after their July 1961 marriage. Furthermore, just one month prior to the Dupereau family chartering the Bluebell, Harvey had been hired by the vessel's owner, businessman Harold Pegg, to take tourists to the sea upon their desired cruises in exchange for 300 bucks a month and free accommodation aboard the catch. This agreement may have formulated Harvey's plan to murder his wife at sea, then claim that she had just simply vanished with tourists viewed in his mind as valuable witnesses to corroborate his claims. The Harvey's first chartered clients were indeed the Dupereau family. 
The conclusion of the inquiry was that Harvey had planned to kill his wife and collect her $20,000 double indemnity insurance policy, which would yield double the insured sum if she died accidentally. However, Harvey may have been observed by Arthur Duperow in either the act of the murder of his wife or the disposal of the body. Harvey then had to proceed to kill Duperow, his wife, his two children, who may also have witnessed his murder. Furthermore, he had likely retrieved Renee's body from the ocean to add credibility to his story. In closure, the inquiry concluded that had Harvey not committed suicide, he would have definitely been prosecuted for the murder of all those who had died aboard the Bluebell that day, and the attempted murder of Terry Joe as well. However, this wasn't the first. No, 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 no. Harvey was experienced at insurance fraud. Searching further into his background, investigators had discovered that he previously survived a 1949 car crash that had killed the second of his previous five wives and her mother when a 1946 Plymouth Deluxe he had been driving plunged off a bridge at high speeds into a bayou on a rainy night in which he had swum to safety, leaving his wife, Joan, Joan and Jean, well, okay, and her mother, Myrtle, to drown. One of his boats, the Torbatros, had also previously sunk after running into the submerged wreckage of the warship San Marcos, which had sunk in 1911 in shallow water within Chesapeake Bay. Crew members on board had repeatedly warned Harvey to steer his yawl clear of the wreckage, but he had repeatedly navigated his vessel around the prohibited site, claiming to his crew's passengers to be attempting to read an inscription upon a buoy marked at the site. His powerboat, the Valiant, had also sunk under suspicious circumstances off the coast of Cuba in 1958. All these losses and tragedies had yielded a large insurance settlement from which she had financially benefited. Following the loss of her family, Terry Jo returned to Green Bay to live with her father, sister, and grandmother, and three cousins in the city of De Pierre. She refused to part with the blouse and slack she was wearing at the time of her rescue. The following year, she changed her first name to Terror, in part due to her refusal to be viewed as a victim. Due to contemporary psychology coping strategies in the early 1960s, authority figures very seldom spoke with Terry Joe about her ordeal, and she received no trauma counseling. Consequently, she did not speak publicly about the loss of her family and her survival ordeal for over 20 years. Terry Joe later married and bore three children. As an adult, she chose to live and work close to the ocean. She is now retired and resides in Wisconsin. In 2010, Terry Joe Dupereau Fassbender, cool name, what a great name that is, released her memoir, Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, co-authored with psychologist and survival expert Richard Logan. The book details her family's final cruise, Harvey's murder of her family and his wife, and three and a half days she spent drifting upon the cork float prior to her rescue and her life in the years since. However, there is always going to be some controversy, and here we are with Earl Stanley Gardner, and he speculated as to why Harvey did not actually murder Terry Joe upon the Bluebell. Gardner has speculated that Harvey may have actually subconsciously wanted to be caught and punished for his actions. However, Logan and others have theorized that Harvey had actually intended to kill her, but when Terry Joe accidentally dropped the rope connecting his dinghy to the boat, he was forced to dive overboard in order to prevent it floating away without him, and thus he left her alive on the sinking ship, believing she would just simply not survive. 49 years after her ordeal, Terry Joe granted a television 
interview with morning television show host Matt Lauer, in which he stated, quote, I think he probably thought I would go down with the ship, end quote. She also stated her belief Harvey had originally intended to discreetly murder his wife and dispose of her body, later to claim that she was lost at sea, but that his wife likely fought back, attracting the attention of her family. Terry Joe has also stated she does not wish for people to reflect upon her ordeal and opine, saying, gee, that poor little girl, but rather to think to themselves, quote, she has gone on with her life. Terry Joe has also stated that she has always believed I was saved for a reason. If one person heals from a life tragedy after reading my story, my journey will have been worth it. So there you go. I think this is one of the first episodes in a long time where we actually had a conclusion. Wow. So this is what it feels like. This is what closure feels like, eh? I don't know if I've ever had this feeling before. So, so weird. Anyway, that's all I got for you this week. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, or even that five-star rating on Spotify would be fucking fantastic. It's been a hot minute since we've got one of those, so if you would be so kind, just drop one in, and you'll be my best friend forever. If you do any of the above, feel free to reach out to me on social media and let me know that you did such things, and I'll give you a shout-out on the show. You can find me on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod or on Facebook at Horror Shots. Don't forget to check out my Patreon as well for some updated episodes of the History of Demons. Yeah, I've been doing some of those lately, but they're only available to Patreon people. And again, if you do sign up to the patron thingy, then, well, guess what? You get a shout-out every episode. Yeehaw! Anyway, that's all I got for you this week. Until next time.